Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to um, Acts chapter 2. We'll be in Acts 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the rack underneath the chair in front of you. We'll be on page 628 in those Bibles, page 628. Uh, if you've been gone some this summer and are just recently getting back, you have likely discovered it's kind of difficult to get around Tempe right now. There's just a little bit of construction going on. The lines have been fun, haven't they? Earlier this summer, uh, the city of Tempe did a big project on a stretch, a several-mile stretch of McClintock. First, they, they came through and scraped off the top layer of the asphalt and then put deep grooves in perforated the layer below it. Anybody remember this? Yes? So for about a week, it sounded like you were sitting next to a jet engine if you drove down McClintock. Then they came through and put up cones and uh, dividers, and so we were like hamsters trying to figure out where to go and which path would allow you to exit where and turn where. It was uh, interesting. At first it was fun, but as traffic developed, it got old pretty quickly. So you'll imagine my delight when I turned on to McClintock to drive home about a month ago, and there was fresh, smooth asphalt. Even the smell was wonderful. I was coming home from the office late after a meeting, and it had literally just been put down, and there was no cones and no lines. So for a while, this was amazing. It was no rules. Just go do whatever you want. And I was on the motorcycle and was ducking and weaving and darting and going faster and slower. There was no cars for a long stretch. But I got to the corner of McClintock and Baseline. And if you know the area, the, the road widens there. And it tends to get a lot busier after that intersection. So I came through the intersection and realized this is actually not good, that there are no line markings at all. And just about got run over by a car not paying attention to what um, he was doing. Friends, the lines on the road are there to protect us, right? And that's what our lives are like spiritually, apart from the guiding obedience of the scriptures to our shared life together as a church family. What may seem cumbersome to us is actually there for our protection. It's actually there so that we can function and accomplish what God's given us to accomplish. Many of us in the room here today are Christians, and we're really accustomed to reading the Bible to find guidance for our own lives. It makes sense to us to open the Word, to spend some time in the morning gleaning insights for the day for our own individual lives and our own walks with Christ. But the scriptures were given not just for that. They're not merely an individual guidebook for private life. They're also given to give us guidance for our shared life together as a church family. And this guidance for us spiritually are what the lines on the road are to us physically. They're protection, guidance, and pathways for flourishing. So beginning today and over the next um, six weeks, Lord willing, our plan is to take um, a designated period of time to look together 
each week at one biblical passage and see the lines that it paints for us for our life together as a church family. Under the good rule of King Jesus, we're going to talk mainly about three things. We're going to look at how the Bible tells us we're to be congregationally governed as a church. We are defining that as God says his church is to be made up of members who joyfully enjoy responsibility for one another. The old adage, uh, I am not my brother's keeper, is true in some ways, but when we come to thinking about our, our faith and our life together as Christians, it's actually not true at all, and it's unhelpful to the commitments we are seeking to have to each other. So God tells us in the scriptures the church is to be congregationally governed. Second, we'll look at this in, in two weeks, we're to be elder-led. God says his church is to be led, cared for, taught, and protected through a group of qualified and called men who share the responsibility to pastor the members. So in a couple weeks, we'll look at that. And then finally, we're to be deacon-served. God says his church is to be served by qualified and called men and women known as deacons. So just like when we're driving on a road, we are familiar with the lanes, we know what the lines are there for, it doesn't require much thought. We simply know this is the way in which we're supposed to drive. The church is, is designed by God to function in the same way. It's not as though we would show up on a Sunday morning and be particularly concerned about who are the deacons. It's that the deacons would be functioning so well that our life together simply happens. It just functions well because we're following the prescription God's given us. After many years of study and prayer and your affirmation to start this process, the leadership team brought a formal proposal to adopt those three statements and to begin to structure the church in accordance to those um, truths. On September 20th, we'll be, as a church family, voting to affirm or reject that way of practicing church. And if you've been gone this summer or you've been here and just haven't been paying attention, there's uh, a host of documents we've put out to give a lot more detail to this. They are available in the entryway. Um, there's papers on elders, deacons, and then a proposed set of bylaws. But a vote on this proposal, uh, we, to do that well, we need to be asking a more basic fundamental question. And that's what we'll be talking about today. The question is this, what exactly makes something a church? How is a group of Christians different than a group of Christians gathered and intending to be a church family? What is the church supposed to do? What's it look like for Church on Mill to be a church? And what would make this a vibrant church family? That's our topic for today, and uh, we'll look at Acts 2 in just a moment. Um, as we're walking through these messages over the next six weeks, I would encourage you to be thinking critically about them and to note any, any suggestions or questions that you have. And uh, something different we'll be doing after these messages is um, I or whoever else is preaching will gather immediately after our worship time together over in this corner of the west wing of the auditorium and we'll simply have an informal time of question and answer and response. So if there's something that comes up that you'd like to know more about, or maybe you have a different way of thinking about or a suggestion you'd like to make, then two or three minutes after we finish, 
the closing prayer and the benediction. We'll gather over there and would love to hear your insights. So Acts 2, 42 to 47. Let's look at it together. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they, now we're jumping in in the middle of a passage here, the they is the first church. So the very first church that ever existed was the church in Jerusalem. It was a huge church, thousands of people. It's possible to be a really large church and to be faithful. It's possible to be a really small church and to be unfaithful. The size of the church does not determine its, its fruitfulness and its effectiveness, but rather obedience to the word of God does. This happens to be a, a huge church that we'll find was doing the important things the church is to do. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers. And an awe came over every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they, re- they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 2 gives a great vision for a healthy church, the kind of church you'd love to bring your friends and family to, Right? That kind of description of church is is anything but boring. It's an exciting gathering of God's people where God's clearly among them and at work. Acts 2 describes a vibrant community of faith where individuals have become a unified, joyful people together under the good rule of God. Many describe Acts 2 as church at its very best, church the way it's supposed to be. So if we take those descriptions of the church in Jerusalem and think about our own church setting, or if you're here visiting today and this isn't your church home, then maybe your church somewhere else, if you have one. Imagine being a part of a church where no legitimate need goes unmet, where literally everything that's a legitimate need is met by the generosity of the members. Imagine joyful generosity being the norm, a group of people that don't hold on to their stuff but share it freely with each other. Imagine the teaching that you're given burning in your hearts and encouraging you with God's power throughout the week. So the sermon isn't something simply to be tolerated for a few minutes on Sunday morning, but the very word of God that comes to you with his authority. Imagine our times together of sharing the Lord's Supper, like we'll do later this morning, being so meaningful and unifying that the non-Christians among us, watching us, observing us, can't help but ask questions. Imagine holding your possessions so loosely that with gladness you'll share with your brothers and sisters so that no one has real need. Imagine church not feeling like an obligation or a chore, but an honor and a delight. Imagine our relationships with one another being so close, so forgiving, so committed, so thoughtful that heaven breaks in when we meet. And these relationships are not particularly divided by age or marital status or amount of Bible knowledge. They're not segregated by education or how we look. 
Relationships that break all the barriers we normally see in society, like race and backgrounds and income levels. Relationships in which the gospel is truly the root. Because we know at the cross, we're all equals. Friends, Tempe needs that kind of church. There's lots of churches in Tempe, Arizona. But there's not very many that we could describe like that. We need that kind of a church. You need that kind of church. So how do we become God's church, God's way? That seems to be our question for today. Here's where Acts 2 becomes really helpful because it's the first church. So it's the prototype, if you will. When a car is made, they make a car after the prototype. But how we think about that prototype becomes important to this conversation. Sometimes when people read Acts 2, they see it as a prescription for a dynamic, healthy, gospel-centered experience as a church. In other words, sometimes people take Acts 2 and hold it up and say, that's exactly how we're supposed to do church if we're going to be a healthy church. Maybe you're tempted to say, if I'm honest, my GC is pretty boring. The preaching here is mediocre. Nobody really wants to serve. And all we pray about is grandma's hurt elbow. Nobody's honest. And I've got better camaraderie at the gym than I do at church. Have you ever felt any of those things? Quit nudging the person next to you. Just yourself. Have you ever felt that about this church? Perhaps that's been your experience here. I hope not, but it's certainly possible that you have had some of those kind of experiences. One way of thinking about Acts 2 is to hold it up and say, here's the formula. If we're going to fix this mediocre place, then we got to do what they did. we got to follow their prescription for healthy church. So let's have services way more often. And definitely get a better speaker Let's have some real fellowship where we actually talk about things going on in our lives. Let's bust up all the structures we have and regroup people in a different way. Let's take the Lord's Supper every week. Let's sell our stuff and pass it out. Let's schedule a daily time of food in each other's homes. Let's look at each other's bank accounts and see if we're actually sharing with generosity. Let's get freaking serious about Bible study. Let's do church like they did it. Are you with me? Yeah? It's hot, isn't it? We, we wanted you to feel at home, and we're, we're contextualizing the gospel. I'm sorry it's warm. Uh, at one level, that way of thinking about Acts 2 makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if that's what happened in the first church, if if these are the people that actually saw Jesus, experienced his life, saw dramatic things being happening, then shouldn't we try to do church the way they did it? I mean, after all, it worked. I mean, they were the prototype, and they made a bunch of other churches all the way down to we are in existence because Acts 2 was a good church. In some ways, that makes sense. Some of their activities are things that 
we are specifically told in other passages we're supposed to repeat. But on another level, this misses the point of Acts 2 entirely. The Acts 2 church was not following a formula that resulted in spiritual vitality. There was no prescription that they were following. They weren't doing activities in order to muster up spiritual experiences. No, they were doing those things because they had already had particular encounters with God. They are the result of, not the cause of. Let me see if I can explain that in a few minutes. Who were the members of the very first church? Who are the people in Acts 2? Well, Acts is actually the second volume in a very lengthy, carefully researched biography about Jesus by a guy named Luke. And if we swing back into his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus before the crucifixion and resurrection. So if you're here today and you don't know the the story of the Bible, we're thrilled you're here. Take that Bible that's in the chair in front of you. Take it home and read it. We, We believe it's God speaking. The story of the scriptures at this point is Jesus has already come from heaven, lived his life, died, rose again, and gone back to heaven. And the church, this new group of people that didn't exist before is worshiping him. So all that's already taken place. But if we back up into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, we find that Jesus is appearing before a guy named Pilate. Pilate was the Roman leader of Jerusalem at the time. Religious leaders wanted him dead because they were jealous and believed that Jesus was a heretic. So the same guy that wrote Acts wrote this. It'll be on the screens. Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priest and the rulers of the people. And he said, You brought me this man, referring to Jesus, as one who's misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him, by him. I will therefore punish and release him. So Pilate, a man who did not believe the Old Testament, a man who did not claim to follow the God of the Israelites, a man who didn't have any reason to be for Jesus, says, I look at him, I've listened to you, I've looked at his life, And I don't see any reason why he should face what you're wanting him to face. But look how the crowd reacts. Verse verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! And release to us Barabbas! A man who had been thrown in prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And perhaps one of the saddest sentences in the Bible. Their voices prevailed. 
So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown in prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but delivered Jesus over to their will. Jesus was taken from this moment. He was stripped. He was beaten until he was unrecognizable. His back literally shredded. The crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was forced to carry the beam of a cross through town. He was mocked, spit on, stripped completely naked, and then nailed to a cross. And at the cross, he died completely alone, bearing the weight of the sins of the world. This was God's perfect son, fully obedient to him in every way, who died as a substitute for sinners. So back in Acts, the people in Acts 2, who are they? Well, who are the people a month and a half later, that's about the time difference between this event and Acts 2. Who are the people meeting day after day, selling their stuff, welcoming people into their home, passionately singing to God, worshiping this Jesus who had been killed, submitting to the apostles' teaching, engaging in a completely different way of life because Jesus had risen from the dead? Who are they? They're the same people. The crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him, is the same crowd praising him. They were the ones caught up in the fury of the crowd demanding the innocent Jesus be murdered. They were the ones whose voices prevailed. They killed Jesus. This has been a year or a two-year period of time in which we have seen mobs of people in America do violent things they would not have done alone. If we zoom out a little bit further, we've seen dramatic change over the world as social media has brought people together and they formed mobs who have done sometimes peaceful things and sometimes very violent things that have resulted in tremendous change. This mob, in chaotic violence, screamed for Jesus to be killed. Crucify him! Crucify him! They said. In Acts, Luke puts it like this, quoting Peter's sermon earlier. Look back a few verses to Acts 2, verse 22. So this is prior to the church being formed. Peter says this in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, there's no question. The people in the Gospel of Luke yelling for Jesus to be killed are the exact same people who are now the members of the very first church. 
Their voices were the voices of ones cursing God. Their voices were the ones mocking. Their voices were the voices of rejecting. But now, those same voices, just six weeks later, have gathered in peace and they're praising God. And their actions could not be more different. They're now praising Him. Their selfishness is gone. Arrogance has vanished. Harmony and love and joy and peace and calm now prevail. Shouts of praise to Jesus fill the air where voices against Him had just ruled. Now, how do you explain that? Maybe you're here today and you're undecided about Jesus. Frankly, I don't blame you. The story is a little bit crazy. A man was killed, and then he came back from the dead. And not just resuscitation, but resurrection. It's a different claim. It's not simply that he came back exactly how he was before. It's that he came back with a a transformed body a body that would never die again. So why should you believe that? How do we know that this isn't just some crazy myth or some crazy moralistic story, but it didn't actually happen? Well, if you take Luke, who was a doctor, and read through his story, he's not claiming something, anything different than history. He's claiming this is what happens. And he gives all kinds of clues and persuasive arguments to help us with our speculation. It's natural to have speculation about the story. One of those key arguments he makes is the same people who had just rejected Jesus are now giving over their money and possessions because they say he rose from the dead. The same people who ran in fear, his followers, at his arrest, now are standing preaching before crowds of people. How could Peter have done that unless something dramatic had happened? Those are historical evidences to think about. But listen in on Peter's message again. Look at verse 36. Acts 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now take those words off the page. Okay, this isn't just a story. This actually happened. So Jesus stood in front of a mob of people, and that mob prevailed. Their authority assured his death. Now Peter, who that day had run in fear, who was hiding, cowering. Why? Not rhetorical. Why would Peter have been hiding, silenced in that moment? He was afraid of the same fate. Can you blame him? This this Jesus who he loved, who he saw do tremendous things, we heard teach with power. Peter's life had been changed. That, that Jesus who only spoke peace 
now had incredible violence done against him. Why would the crowd not turn on Peter in the same way? And just six weeks later, he's standing in front of the same mob of people, and he's saying, you did it. You're responsible. God sent him, and you killed him. That's a different Peter, isn't it? How do we explain that? Well, maybe it's just hyperbole. Maybe, maybe Luke got in cahoots with Peter and they devised this plan through which to make Peter look good. Friends, the, the most logical explanation is that what Peter's claiming happened actually happened. Who are the people in the Acts 2 church? They're the ones who killed Jesus. When they came face to face with their sin, their sin of crucifying the person God sent to save them, and their sin of living apart from his plan and his will, when they came face to face with that, they were devastated. The guilt and shame of their actions was crushing to them. God's truth pierced them to their core. They came to see that Jesus willingly gave up his life, dying in their place, so they could be made right with God. They were completely undone by the fact that despite what they had done to Jesus, Jesus still offered a message of love and forgiveness. They experienced the effects of their sin. They saw that it cost Jesus his life and that the grave couldn't hold him. So what did they do in response? Well, many of them repented and were baptized. In other words, they said, I believe in Jesus. My sin killed him. I was wrong. He's God. He rose again. And now all that I am belongs to him. The compassion and grace of God that would forgive even the murder of Jesus became the very center of their reality. It became the absolute most important thing to them. So much so that overnight, the church was born. God's self-sacrifice, his, his crushing of guilt and shame, his victory over evil in his death and resurrection changed everything. So friends, do you see how the church, the, the stuff we read they did, isn't what caused the church to be dynamic. They're simply the natural outflowings of lives radically changed by God. Jesus gave his life for me. Sure, I can share my stuff. Jesus gave his life for me. Sure, I'll sit under teaching and, and strive and have effort by God's grace to live differently. Jesus gave his life for me. Now the Spirit lives in us. So I can reorient my life around the people of God. Friends, people aware of their sin before God cast themselves at his mercy and his grace. And then, because the gospel's true, these same people live a life of repentance and love and acceptance and compassion. They come to see that their other brothers and sisters not biologically, people who look different than them, smell different than them, eat different kind of food than them, 
have a different personality than them, have different views on things like politics than them. Those people who share the experience of being gripped by sin and forgiven by God come to see that I have more in common with them than even some of my own biological family. Therefore, I will sacrifice, I will love, I will serve, I will strip away unnecessary things from my life in order that I have time to tell people about this God and gather often with people as my family. Friends, that's what makes for an Acts 2 church. If Jesus were writing a, a prescription, if he, if he said, Church on Mill, you're a, a good church, but you're anemic in a couple areas. You need, you need this and this and this in order to grow. If Jesus was writing a script for us, a prescription to improve Church on Mill's health, he wouldn't say, do this and this and this and this, because that's what they did in Acts 2. This is a different culture. We're different people. This is a different time. We might not need to gather in this room every single day. We might meet at Starbucks instead of at home. But what he would write the script for is that we be people broken forever over our sin. That we see that we killed Jesus. That we see that our sin has devastating effects upon God. And yet that same God who is offended by our sin is the one who extends forgiveness to us. And that wonder and amazement over being loved and accepted and given a new identity in Christ would become the very center of life. And then out of that flow all kinds of things, don't they? Friends, do you hear the words, crucify him, crucify him? Do you hear them? You should. Because every time you sin and every time I sin, that's what we are saying. You don't have to go far to hear those words because they come from your own mouth. And yet God still, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself for us. Every time you choose to lust, Every arrogant thought that looks down on somebody else. Every quote-unquote white lie you've ever told. Every time you cling to your own stuff. Every time you lash out in anger. Every time you go through a whole day without thoughtful consideration of God. Friends, every act of disobedience is the equivalent of us being in that crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They killed Jesus, and we killed Jesus. So what do we do? Well, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer in the 1500s, you may have heard of this, wrote a list of theses that in that culture, which was very different than the Acts 2 culture, 
He went to a, a Catholic church door and he nailed these 95 theses to the wall. In that day, that was a way of saying, I want to have an academic debate. I'm calling us to account for these truths. The first one, when it's translated into English, says something like, the whole of life for a Christian is a life of repentance. Christian, you you don't repent the day you're saved and then cease needing to repent ever again. Now that can be a little confusing because God says, brother or sister, that when you repent of your sin, when you turned from sin and turned to God, that God now categorically treats you different. He now regards you as what? His child. He's adopted you into his family. And so he now looks at you as he looks at Jesus. So all the acceptance and the affection and the love and the status that his son has, you now have. Settled forever. Past sins, present sins, future sins. Completely done. And yet, in 1 John 1.9, we're told, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him to be a liar and his truth isn't in us. Huh? How does that work? There is a sense in which your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven already, complete. It's a unified whole. Regardless of what you have repented of specifically today or not. Theologians call this your positional forgiveness in God, meaning that your status as Christian or non-Christian, as enemy or friend, as heaven-bound or hell-bound, is settled once for all. There's nothing you could do to change it. That's positional forgiveness. And yet, passages like 1 John 1.9 tell us we're to continue to repent of sin. Not to earn back right standing before God, but because we already have it, we're supposed to practice fellowship forgiveness or repentance ongoingly in our relationship with God. Let me make that more simple. Jill and I have been married for uh, 19 years this year. You didn't know that looking at her, did you? That's a long time. Now, in those 19 years, has there ever been anything that would have necessitated me asking her for forgiveness? (laughs) What, Abby? Yes, there's been a lot of things. A whole lot of things. In those moments in which I have sinned against her, did I cease being her husband? No, that's that's a position that I was given the day she foolishly said I do. (laughs) But sin against a husband and a wife can, can impede the joy of that relationship. It doesn't change the status of the reality of it, but it can impact 
the ease of communication, the kind of communication we need to have, it's no different between me and God. The church, after all, is his bride. So, Christian, when you sin, it's as though a little, um, a little brick gets put in place between you and God. Your relationship with God remains a settled fact. But your enjoyment of God, your ease of hearing from God, your, your equipping for a life of service, all change based on our behavior. And so, brother or sister, if, if you're here today and you're aware of something in your life that you have not yet given over to God, it may be an action, it may be an attitude, it may be a posture of the heart, then the message in Acts 2 for you and for me is that we need to repent and we need to turn again from sin and turn back to God. Not to earn back salvation, but because you've already been given it. Because that thing you've been nurturing and hiding is a thing for which Christ died. Now what if you're here today and you're, you're not a believer? You've never given your life to Christ. Then, my dear friend, it is God's kindness that you're here today. He worked this out ahead of time. You didn't realize it, but he brought you here. He brought you here to hear us sing and to hear us pray, to watch us greet each other, to watch us give money in an offering, and to hear his word preached so that you could hear your voice in that crowd. You didn't know it, but you killed Jesus. And yet, Jesus' arms were stretched out wide because he loves you. And he is alive today. And he's saying, if you will come to me, turn from your sin and turn to God, then he will love you and save you and forever say, you're mine. We're going to talk a lot over the next six weeks about structuring church on mill in obedience to God's instructions. And the structure matters because it's a matter of being obedient to the Bible. And it's setting up the church in a long-term way to flourish. It's articulating the rules of the road and putting lines in the street so that we can live our Christian lives well. But please understand, the power of a vibrant church comes not from the structure. It comes from the shared experience of knowing we are people who Jesus has saved and never straying far from the foot of the cross. Let's pray. And before I voice a prayer collectively for us, I would encourage each and every one of us to seek 